High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. One really wonders about the White House and President Trump. Um, You can disagree with everything he does, but if he can't get simple things right, then you're not going to be very confident that he can get big things right. Now, uh, I've talked at length about the Taoiseach and the seeming army of PR people uh, he has around him. Nobody in the Varadkar PR team would have allowed Mrs. Trump go to the hurricane-damaged Texas wearing the kind of shoes she wore. Now, she's wobbling across the tarmac to the helicopter to go to people. Now, they said, well, she changed the shoes in the plane or whatever. That's not the point. You know, when the Taoiseach went to Donegal, there he was, kitted out in his rain gear with his heavy boots. It's the optics that count. And if the Trump White House can't get the optics right of a pair of shoes for the First Lady, then you wonder what can they get right? Because that's simple. That's not difficult. And to fail to do that just demonstrates the kind of alternative universe uh, that this White House is living in. Um, Foreign languages? Well, have a listen to this before I talk. I must have spent eight years learning French in school, and I still can't speak French. Um, if I'd spent eight weeks in, a, in an intensive language lab, I could probably speak it fluently. It's such a terrible waste of school time. If you need to learn French, um, or any language for that matter, go into one of these intensive places and learn it, and then go and practice it wherever you're going, treating it as if it was a sort of abstract subject in school. It's a waste of school time. Well, he's wrong. Like, because um, the, the, the point he's making is that just about speaking French. Of course, if you just want to speak French, then, of course, uh, there's a better way of doing it. The problem we have in this country is we don't have any system of teaching foreign languages. How is it that we can go um, to almost every European country and they can speak English? And they learned it at school. Now, Simon Jenkins, who you heard there, is a Guardian journalist. But he's wide off the mark. If he's a Guardian journalist and he wants to learn French, sure, he takes eight weeks, goes to an intensive course. A child in school is completely different. But we come out after all these years at school and we can't speak the national language, which is Irish, and we can't speak any of the foreign languages that were purported to have studied either because we have no way of teaching. We don't give them any love of it. We don't give them any love of the country where the the language actually came from. And we're just a walking disaster. And don't tell me, you know, we should be learning Chinese or whatever. I don't care what might the kids learn. They should have one other language besides English. Now, apparently Mark Zuckerberg, he's some multi-multi-multi-billionaire with Facebook or some such thing, which I pay no attention to. But he gets in the headlines because he wrote to his daughter. Um, Now, why would you write to your daughter who can't probably read the letter? I'm 
you know, the only reason you wrote it was that it was going to appear in the paper. Um, it, it was going to have no value in relation to your daughter, even though what he was saying was actually quite valid. In other words, he was saying to the child, you know, go out and smell the trees, kick a football, climb a tree, steal some apples, do all the things that children of previous generations did. Don't have your nose stuck in dare I say, the Facebook that's made all the money for daddy. I think it's a howl that this guy, who is probably damaging the brains of zillions of children around the world, is then writing to his child and say, actually, you know what? Don't be looking at your phone or at your iPad. Go out and smell the trees. Your thoughts would be important to me here, to 53106, about language, about high heels, or indeed about uh, telling your children to uh, smell the trees. Um, Laura said, totally agree, George. I love my glamour, but the first lady looked ridiculous in her stilettos. Certainly not a woman of the people. Poor judgment on her part. It was indeed, Laura. Awful judgment. Although I can tell you, Laura, if I'm allowed to present a point of view of the mere male, there's nothing like a pair of stilettos walking down the street in front of you. Uh, I just think they're wonderful. And I think flat shoes. I am totally opposed to flat shoes. I've been opposed to flat shoes um, since I first saw, I think it was Marilyn Monroe in a movie. Since I had those first stirrings of attraction towards the opposite sex, I've been opposed to flat shoes and in favour of high heels. Uh, as uh, a lady friend of my acquaintance once said, she said, George, champagne and high heels are the same. There's a price to be paid the following day. All right. Thank you very much. Mark says all our time is taken up with Irish and religion in school. You're right. Religion's a great idea. And Irish is a great idea. And we should spend some time studying them. I'm going to be talking about this famous public services guard now. And I am joined on the telephone by the Associate Professor of Law at Trinity College, Dublin, uh, Owen O'Dell. Dr. O'Dell, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon, George. It almost sounded like you were the person wearing the high heels in that last um, praise of high heels. I tried it, I must say. I did try it. Uh, it's the only part of women's clothing that I felt uncomfortable in, uh, in my various experiments. Um, but Dr. O'Dell, we're on about much more important things, which is this public services card, of which I'm a huge fan. What about you? Well, I think there are two different questions here, George. The first one is... Uh, the, the practical question of what is the card, why, uh, why do we have it, what is the information being gathered for, and, you know, there, there's an awful lot of debate that we could have around um, getting the cards, getting the information, how the government is sharing the information, what is using the information for, making government easier, making access to government services easier, and so on. But I don't remember having a debate about that when all of these things were being put together. But let's assume that there but, are sorry, reasons first, like you okay. just articulated. The second problem is that um, it needs to have a, a good, solid legal basis. And um, 
uh, that legal basis should flow from all of the defence and justification and iteration that you, you're about to give me as to why the, the card should be there in the first place. Um, and that legal basis should allow the sorts of things that you want to do. And it seems to me that we haven't had a proper debate and we don't have uh, a proper legal basis. OK, I want to take the first one first, which is sure. a good idea. And this is the debate. Why do we have to have a debate about it? I mean, the government says, we think this is a good idea. We're going to bring in a public services card, your name and your PS, uh, whatever you call it, PRSI number is going to be on it, PPS number, and all your other stuff. And now when you go in for your passport, your driving license, your old age pension, your unemployment benefits, you just uh, whisk the card through a machine and you're off and running. Well, George, I would like to live in a society where major changes to the structure of the society are democratically debated, publicly in the Oireachtas, where the government has to persuade public opinion, where the government has to pass legislation. Uh, uh, and uh, do you know what? What a surprise. I do live in that sort of society. The government, however, would prefer us that they would make decisions and that we would all do what we are told. Uh, and I don't think that's an appropriate way to govern a democracy. Democracy requires um, legislation to be passed before the government can go and do these things. And so the question has to be, how do we get legislation passed? We get legislation passed by public debate, by uh, debate in the Oireachtas, uh, by the, the, the bills being voted for. And then once we have the bills voted for, we can examine the legislative basis okay. of what they are doing. Okay. But there isn't a, uh, an appropriate. We haven't had that debate, and we don't have an appropriate political, uh, an appropriate legislative basis for what they are doing. Well, I don't know, and that's why I brought you on the program. Sure. Are you actually suggesting? I don't think you are, but it sounds like you are, that you're suggesting that, in effect, the card is illegal because it didn't go through all the, the clear all the fences in Dolairn for its uh, implementation. Well, um, I'm not suggesting that the card is illegal. There is a, a legislative basis for the PPS number and for the uh, public services card. They are... They are in the uh, Social Welfare Consolidation Act 2005. What I am suggesting, though, is that the increasing um, usages of the card, the increasing additional data that is being added to the card, that the, the, the additional functions that are being um, loaded on top of it, one after the other, uh, those things are questionable. Those things don't have a great deal of public debate, and they certainly don't seem to fall within the legislation. The legislation uh, in 2013 said that the minister can require um, that uh, any identity that he or she provides, um, reasonably provides, uh, can be the identity for the purposes of authenticating the identity of an okay, applicant for but, social uh, uh, but George, it's only for the purpose of authenticating identity for access to public services. That's the only purpose that is additionally okay. given to the card. But, but, but hold a minute now, before you get carried away. Like, you, you go down and you apply for a passport, and uh, the, the person behind the grill says, well, fill in this form, I want your name and address and a picture signed by a guard, and I want 
branch or PPS number or whatever they want. They ask all this information and we happily fill it in the form. Uh, then I get my driving license. They ask me for all this information. I write it all down the form and I give it to them. And I, and I don't think it's intrusive. I don't think they're spying on me. I don't think my privacy has been invaded. Then I go down and I want my old age pension and they say fill in this form. Then somebody wants unemployment benefit and they fill in this form. Now some of the people seeking the old age pension, unemployment benefit, the passport or sundry or things are not the person they purport to be. The card ensures that they are the person who is sitting in front of the official. Well, um, there's there's a number of things there. The first thing is that uh, it's perfectly legitimate that, um, uh, I mean, what I thought you were going to say was that you've got all of these services and there's no point in giving all the same information uh, repeatedly to all. No, I'm worried about invasion of privacy that all you liberals go on about. Um, Well, I'm not so much worried about invasion of privacy, though I am. I'm just worried about ensuring that the uh, the state operates properly, that uh, uh, democratic checks and balances uh, are, are observed. So your your question about fraud that is one of the good reasons for having the card data sharing between uh, be, between government bodies so that you don't have to keep filling in uh, you so that you don't have to keep filling in the same information again and again. That's another of the good reasons for having the card. My point, though, George, is not that there aren't good reasons, because I accept that there are, uh, and you can keep giving me good reasons for the rest of the interview, and I'll keep acknowledging that they are good reasons. It's that those good reasons must then be set out in legislation, so the legislation allows them to happen for that reason. And we have a card that was established in 2005. We have a power that says in 2013 that it can be used for access to services for the purposes of identification, uh, authentication of identity, which is your fraud example, that's a very good one. But that's the only reason right. that the legislation allows it to be used. And it doesn't say that it's the exclusive means of authentication of identity. Um, and it's the, it's the exclusivity, the mandatory nature of the exclusive nature uh, of insisting yeah. just on that card that is one of the problems. But uh, Helen works in the department and she says she's amazed at negative reaction because the department has all this information already. They have your PPS number and they have your address and they have your this, that and the other thing. And the only difference then is you bring in a card uh, which they can swipe. And secondly, and most importantly, you have a picture. So now they know that the person sitting in front of them is that person. No, but before okay, but I get to that, hold on. Here's that, that what that's all perfectly okay. Yeah. Um, they do have a lot of that information for the purposes of the PPS number, and they do have a lot of other information when people access the services that they provide. So, yes, it's consolidating that information in a single place. But the this issue became an issue during the course of the last week, although journalists like Elaine Edwards and the Irish Times have been uh, uh, pressing it for considerably longer than that. It became an issue when it became clear that the Department of uh, Social Protection was insisting that this was the only legitimate means of identification. You mentioned the passport. You mentioned the driver's license. These are state-backed methods of identification that also contain uh, uh, authenticated photographs. And why is it that they are being now excluded for the purposes of access? public services. 
you may astonish that I can agree with you on one point, and it is this. I What drove me mad over the last week or so in this debate is that one minister will come out and say, if you want to collect your pension or whatever she said, because I was just so mad I barely read it, uh, but uh, Regine Doherty comes out and says, if you want to collect something, you have to have this card. It's mandatory. And no fella comes out and says, no, 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 it's not mandatory. Um, it, the, the thing about this is, which is the incompetence of its um, in installation or inception is thing that tees me off. We should have been told that, and I, it's why I went in that day to get it, because I thought I had to. And Ingrid and I walked in there by appointment, were dealt with by brilliant staff at the time designated for the interview, but I thought I had to do it as a citizen. Now I discover I don't have to do it, and I don't need it, or I do need it, and nobody now knows what is or is not. That's the huge weakness, surely. I completely agree, George. What the minister said was that it um, wasn't mandatory, but it was compulsory, or perhaps the other way around, which I think is an extraordinary piece of Kafka-esque, almost George W. Bush-esque mangling of language. But the whole point about we don't know whether it's compulsory, we don't know whether it's mandatory, that you could get confused even though you are a well-informed citizen, demonstrates that we haven't had a proper discussion about what it is, what we're going to do with it, who should have it, why we should have it, when it should be exclusive and when, when it should not. So um, the mere fact of your confusion, and if, you, if you're confused as a, as a, uh, you know, a well-informed media commentator, uh, lots of other people who don't have your, your resources are going to be even more confused. And I think that if we'd had a proper debate about it, if we had a proper clear legislative basis about it, then we could answer the question straightforwardly. Right. Is there biometric data? Is it compulsory? What is it used for? Right. Is, it ex- is, it, uh, is it exclusive? All right. Uh, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I, I think the good professor uh, makes important points there. He's Associate Professor of Law at Trinity College Dublin, Dr. Owen O'Dell. I just think we should do it and stop mucking around. Um, but you have, you can get your thoughts here to me at a 53106. It costs 30 cents. Margaret was upset at Mrs. Trump wearing sunglasses. But apparently, um, when she got off the helicopter, she was wearing trainers and she looked the part by all accounts I don't think she did look the part it's very hard for a woman like uh, Mrs Trump uh, to kind of look the part she just doesn't look right in kind of galoshes and all that sort of stuff she's a model and that's her natural sort of look and there, uh, somebody shouting in my ear about Michelle Obama. I even refused to discuss Michelle Obama on this matter, or 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 her husband either. Um, the real question is, I think the woman I would ask if only she were still with us is Jackie Kennedy. I would, I think Jack and Mrs. Kennedy would have done this brilliantly. Sadly, they're no longer with us and we don't know. But your thoughts as always to 53106. German elections coming up. Apparently they're gas over there. They kind of don't have an election, if you know what I mean. They just vote. <laughs> we might talk about that. We've got a smash and break for you in a Clayton Hotel to give away. And we'll be talking about poor old John Lennon. High Noon with George Hook. 
thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. All right, we're going to be talking about German election in a minute because apparently it's gas. They have a completely different way of doing things over there. But before I do, Clayton Hotel, 17 fantastic locations in Ireland and the United Kingdom. I can recommend them all, but particularly the great Clayton Hotel on Burlington Road. You're going to have a romantic two-night break for two adults in the suite, no less. As you sip your Prosecco on arrival, but before going down to dinner on one of the nights, the breakfast every morning is a rare treat, and you can stay late because you've got a late checkout. All you have to do is tell me the former name of uh, the stadium down the road, now the Aviva, what was it called? Text Clayton, C-L-A-Y-T-O-N, together with your name and answer to 53106. Cost you 30 cents, but a cheap price to pay for the Clayton in Burlington Road. If you're thinking of staying somewhere, look up ClaytonHotels.com. Now, in the studio with me is Director of Public Affairs and Communications at Trinity College Dublin, Thomas Malloy, who has a lot of him knowledge about Germany. Lived there, yes? Yes, I did, George. Yeah, I trained yeah. as a journalist there as well and went to school there and just come back from four weeks. So. All right. Now, why, how do they do it differently from us, first of all? Well, it's more that this is an extraordinary election. So Angela Merkel is going for a fourth term in office. There's been enormous change in Germany. A million refugees have come in. Crimea has been invaded. She's decided to close down all the nuclear stations. And yet, despite that, there's no debate, absolutely no debate. There are no posters. If you pick up a newspaper, you, you, you almost see no coverage of the, the elections. If you talk to people, if you talk to friends, if you talk to strangers, nobody's talking about the election. Everybody assumes it's a walkover. Everybody assumes that Angela Merkel is going to thrash the opposition and that the kind of cozy, centrist kind of consensus that's existed now for about 15 to 20 years in Germany will continue. It's kind of it's kind of weird. If you come from Ireland, you know, we also have a, a history of centrist governments, I suppose. But we do also have a, you know, politics is a blood sport here. It's never been quite as intense in Germany. But I've never seen an electorate less interested in election oh, in my now, life. This is important. There is, because you mentioned the million refugees. Now, many people would believe it was the greatest faux pas of Merkel's career to say to a million refugees, come on in, we'd be delighted to have you and the rest of Europe through, through a wobbly. Um, there is a party, a xenophobic right-wing party. Uh, you won't tell me what they're called. AFD. AFD. Mm. Which means alternative for Germany. Yeah, yep. and they're not going to get a big vote. No, they, they, Why they could, not? Well, they could get quite a big vote. I mean, after all, they've come from nowhere. Uh, they were doing very well in the polls last year. Now they're back about 8%. But still, if they were elected at 8%, they would probably be the third biggest party in German politics. And that, that would be, that would be a, not quite an earthquake, but certainly a tremor. And, and a kind of reminder of things to come, because I think whilst this election has been very uninteresting... What, what comes next will be very interesting. This is very like Ireland in 2007. This is how it seems to me. The economy is booming. Consumer confidence is at a 16-year high. And basically, the economy is booming because of inappropriate interest rates. You know, the ECB have push, pushed down rates to ludicrously low levels to help countries like Ireland and Spain and Portugal. Totally inappropriate levels for, for Germany. So you've got a property boom. Poor old Germans look just as naive as we looked back, back you know, 10 years ago. 
You've got uh, everything humming along, lots of demand, and nobody really planning for the future, no one taking any kind of reform measures at all. Merkel is merrily increasing old age pensions, that kind of thing, rather than you know really thinking about what, what a country that is aging rapidly should do. So it's very like um, what we lived through 11, 12 years ago. All right. Okay. Now, you see, part of the reason I brought Jay in was that the listeners would hear something about Germany. And then the other part of the reason I just wanted to talk to you about this because I get, I'm really excited about this because I'm looking at the history of it then as well. Everybody said the reason Merkel invited in the million refugees was because it's very difficult for Germans with German history behind it to go and say, no, you can't come in or whatever. And she had to appear generous. So is, is that why she did it? And then secondly, I thought that Germans weren't going to be very happy with a million refugees pouring over their borders. Now, the suggestion from you is... They don't seem to be remotely worried about it. I mean, 8% for the AFT is a pretty small number still. There are several things here. And I suppose one can start with most Germans still are haunted by the Third Reich. So, you know, they're not inclined to go towards towards the right. Secondly, I, I think none of us know for sure why Merkel did this. But, but, but I think there are two big reasons. One is she had far less choice than we think. The, the refugees were coming anyway. In a way, she opened gates that would have been trampled down. But the other thing that we, we don't really think about much is Merkel is a child of a Lutheran vicarage, as is my mother and my grandfather, my great-grandfather. And Lutheran vicarages are idealistic places where you're used to helping people. Merkel was a refugee when she was young. She knew what it was like to leave a country with nothing, as again do huge numbers of Germans of, of that generation and Austrians and others. So I think this was this was a gut feeling, an emotional response. Now, the funny thing is, it may have cost her, and it has cost her, support within her own party. But it's also gained her a lot of support from people who would have supported the Social Democrats. And, and certainly over the last few weeks, I met a lot of people who, who I know to be Social Democrats saying that, that they would vote for Merkel for two reasons. One, because of what she did with the refugees, and one, secondly, for, for her decision to close down nuclear All reactors. Right. So she's borrowing votes from elsewhere to make oh. up for the shortfall. All right. But, I mean, we're looking, and, and we're going to be talking about, I'm sure in the coming weeks, about the change of politics. Like, we have Varadkar using PR to a huge degree. We have uh, Macron in France. We have Trudeau in, in, in Canada. And we're wondering, you know, is, is politics now more style than substance? Whereas the Germans have this dowdy old dear running the place for 16 years without the remotest attempt at sort of PR. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, Germany is not a, a slick country and, and the elections are, are, are not slick at all. Uh, she, may be, she may be dowdy, but I, I think people uh, feel a, a kind of a pride. I mean, Germany's position in the world has certainly increased in the last, in the last while. And many, many people in many countries say that Merkel is now the natural leader of, of the free world, as Trump has kind of vacated that position. So, you know, for many Germans, they look at what happened in Britain with horror. They look at what's happened in America with horror, and they look at Putin with horror. And they, this is a question that you have to ask yourself as a German voter. Who would you like to stand up to Putin? And who would you like to stand up to Trump? And Merkel has done this very persuasively, whereas 
the the other contender, Martin Schulz, who's a, a Eurocrat, basically, nobody has any great faith that that he would be able to do that. So she, you know, she's she's a safe person. Germans are conservative people. It, it, they're intensely conservative and they're savers and they're all that sort of stuff. But then the other thing you said was, it, well, you're looking at these Germans because you also have a, have a lot of business background. You're looking at these Germans and saying they're a bit like us in 07. They're pretty naive and they're, there's property bubbles and low interest rates and all things that we now look back at with horror. I mean, so are you suggesting that maybe down the road there's going to be some nasty surprises for Germans? I, I think that's inevitable. I think I think there are two things really going on here. One is that, that there's no investment in infrastructure. So even though We've gone through, you know, a really tough 10 years. Driving around Ireland, walking around Ireland, it often feels far more modern than it feels in Germany. You know, with the, th- that's a strange thing. And libraries are closing down, hospitals are closing down. The Germans are, you know, slashing infrastructure spending. And you can only do that for so long. It's very easy. As long as you're not investing in the future, everything looks rosy. Until, of course, you get to the future and you find that there's been no investment. We've seen that with housing in this country. I think... The Germans are storing up problems, but the, the real problem is Germany is aging at a, at a rate of knots, and they're not doing anything about it. All right, it, it, but can we just look at the future? Then? Mm. You know, because what we're really talking about is um, that this election is a bit of a foregone conclusion, so it doesn't really matter. Things carry on as before. So now we have to look at well, what's going to happen in the future. Well, if there's a, if there's a monumental crash, and I, I'm, I'm I'm going to bring you straight back to the 1930s again because the 1930s was the result of a crash. It, it wasn't really the Treaty of Versailles. It was about the Wall Street disaster. Germany has a crash and they've got a million people that they can blame who are all now swanning around Germany. Last week, there were headlines in German newspapers about asylum seekers taking holidays. Holidays was the word they used back in their country that they were reputedly fleeing. So maybe bubbling under the surface, there is quite negative reaction, which if the economy goes wallop, you have to find somebody to blame. You're absolutely right, George. And that's, in a way, why this election is a missed opportunity, because... Really, the big party should be talking about integration. They should be talking about what to do with this million refugees and all the other foreigners who live in Germany. But they're not. You know, they're scared to talk about it. They're scared to remind the electorate that they made this decision that is unpopular So, with many people. So, you know, every election is a, an opportunity for a country to talk with itself. That opportunity is being squandered. And, you know, you're right. If you squander the opportunity... It'll come back and bite you. We need to. We need to kind of. But uh, see, what I'm surprised about is you've just come back from Germany. You have a huge family background in Germany. You know as well. You've worked there. All that sort of stuff. Went to school there, and you're talking about a very uh, uh, friendly Germany. There's a million refugees. It's all hunky dory. It's all cosy because we got money, right? But what about the things like um, the the mass sexual assaults at at New Year's Eve, wasn't it, or mm, Christmas Eve? Cologne, yeah. In yeah. Cologne, so on. I mean, I, didn't, they were, they, I thought they were all worried about that. I mean, the sense now is that they're not worried about that anymore. No, but people are worried, you know, and, and there is an edge to, to life in, in urban centers that there wasn't before. There's no, there's no point in denying that. And, and you, when you talk to Germans, you often hear them say, well, I've had to warn my daughter not to go out and that kind of thing. You know, that, that, that is a reality. You have um, 
a million people, many of whom have witnessed uh, horrendous atrocities, uh, often with no women in sight. And of course, that leads to problems. The Germans are, I suppose, the Germans don't get overly upset by crime. I know that sounds like an odd comment to make, but if you if you listen to news broadcasts, there's almost never kind of any reference to crime or murders or anything like that, unless it's kind of a, you know an exceptional... And is this all right? But is that all like just because they've all they're all carrying this massive chip on their shoulder of the Third Reich? I mean, has the Third Reich how many years on now? 70, 80 years on, is it still there and affecting how Germans think, act, vote? No, I I think it's because (laughs) I think the Germans have quite a mature attitude to the new cycle. You know, they know there's going to be a car accident every day, so they don't bother reporting it. I I sometimes think we could learn from that. There's a lot of, you know, our our news, which is really just the same as yesterday and the same as before, that we should really, you know, drop and talk about other things. But I think there is another thing that has to be said here, which is that the Syrian people are are very good refugees. They're they're easy to integrate with. You know, they're, they're not... Uh, you, you know, when you see them, most of them are already speaking good German. They're bright people. They they don't wear veils. There's none of the the, the obvious stuff that kind of the them and us kind of thing. A little bit like again, I hate to keep coming back to this country, but you know, we we were in a sense uh, from an integration point of view lucky with the foreigners who came here during the Celtic Tiger. Polish people, for instance, the biggest minority, integrate very well. Syrians integrate very well. There are other nationalities that right. struggle much more to integrate. Okay. So there's a bit of yeah, that going remind on Remind well. me how many Germans there are. Uh, there are 80 million. That's a lot of Germans. Yes. So therefore, a decision that Germany makes, whatever decision, you know this great phrase, what is it? If America sneezes, the world catches a cold. I mean, if Amer- if Germany sneezes, Europe catches a cold, yes? Much more than a cold, yeah. yeah, yeah. Influenza, you know, especially in, in, a, in a country like ours. Where so we are, like, we're really concerned about this. We this should this be, yeah. just isn't an election in a far-off land where they don't speak English. This is an election... That has implications for us. Well, I would say if you have a mortgage, for instance, you know, Mario Draghi, the governor of the European Central Bank, is going to be replaced soon. Ultimately, let's face it, that will be a German decision. That will be decided by the next German government, and that will decide what mortgage mortgage payments you make and, you know, how well your company does and a million other things. So, yes, it's, a, it's an incredibly important decision. But it's a no change. Not quite, because what is likely to happen is at, for, for the last two uh, periods of office. Merkel has been governing with the Social Democrats. Now she'll probably be able to, because she's so popular, drop the Social Democrats, which is the second biggest party, and either go into coalition with the Greens or go into coalition with the FDP, which is like the PDs, really, here. So she might lurch a little bit to the right economically, or she might lurch a little bit to to the left environmentally. But she will. It, it will mean that there's proper debate once again in Germany, which will be a good thing. All right, finally, because you've sort of indicated that, that you don't, people don't know there's an election going on. I mean, if you, if, but how does the fellow get elected for Ward 16 in Frankfurt or whatever it is? How does the Social Democrat guy beat his opponent or whatever? How does he do that? quite a good system. Um, I think the British, when they when they conquered countries and left, they, they left good systems behind. They've never given one to themselves. But this is kind of a post-war system that tries to, it gives people local TDs, local representatives who go to Berlin and represent the interests of Schleswig-Holstein or Baden-Württemberg or whatever. But there's also what they call a list system, where, where uh, 
TDs are appointed uh, by the parties. So the, the number of votes cast for a party will be reflected almost exactly in the Bundestag. Uh, so it's very like our system in that way. But it avoids the, the, what I would see as the pitfall of our system, which is kind of that excessive localism, excessive kind of hyper-local politics by uh, having quite large constituencies and by having a mixture of the two. And then they have a, an upper house, which is a bit like the US Senate. It has a number of uh, representatives from each state and the small states get, get a lot of representation. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's a good system. Oh, it's going to be fun. For the first time ever, I'm going to be watching the German election. I'm going to feel uh, informed about what the heck is going on with thanks to my guest, Director of Public Affairs and Communications at Trinity College Dublin, Thomas Malloy. We're going to be talking about the death of John Lennon shortly in Breakthrough. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. The click of a camera can capture more than you know, and often it isn't until afterwards that you realise the significance of what you've caught on film. A simple shot of a seemingly friendly handshake can capture much more than you ever imagined. This is about one of those moments. With temperatures almost reaching 18 degrees Celsius, the weather was unseasonably warm in New York City on December 8, 1980. 40-year-old John Lennon woke up to clear blue skies. He got up and wrapped one of his kimonos around his shoulders before strolling through his spacious white-walled apartment under the ceiling of painted clouds. The sand-coloured apartment building, with its high gables and elaborate balustrades, was one of the most prestigious and exclusive on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Lennon lived here with Yoko Ono and his five-year-old son Sean. On this day, they were on a high. After five years out of the limelight, John and Yoko's new joint album, Double Fantasy, was climbing the charts. But John wasn't going to enjoy this warm December day. Instead, he had a full day of work ahead. After breakfast, he and Yoko Ono welcomed photographer Annie Leibovitz to their apartment for a Rolling Stone photo shoot. Before radio producer Dave Sholin of San Francisco's RKO Radio arrived to interview them, he remembers. The door opens and John appears, does this little jump jumps up in the air and you know proceeds to like say here i am folks you know the show's ready to begin he spreads his arms out and comes right over he could not have been more upbeat john spoke animatedly and was excited about the future i like it to be inspirational from the spirit and being with sean and switching off from the business sort of allowed that channel to be free for a bit you know it wasn't always on it was switched off, and when I sort of switched it on again, zap, all this stuff came through. So now we're already, well, we did half, enough material for the next album, almost half as much, and we're already talking about the third album, so we're full of vim and vigour. After three hours of chatting, Shonen left shortly after 4.30. His crew packed up outside, where the streets were jammed with early evening commuters. A young man approached Shonen. Despite the mild weather, he wore a long coat, gloves, a green scarf and a fake fur hat. He'd been outside the apartment building all day, talking to Beatles fans and the doorman. 
He asked Sholin if he had interviewed John Lennon. But before Sholin could respond, the man walked away, just as John and Yoko emerged from their home. The young man approached John with a vinyl copy of Double Fantasy to sign. Wearing a leather jacket over a blue jumper, the former Beatle shook his hand before writing John Lennon, 1980. As he scribbled his autograph, another superfan, Paul Goresh, who often loitered outside the building, snapped a photo. This is the only photo ever to capture John Lennon and his killer in one frame. John handed the album back to Mark David Chapman and looked at his killer before he turned away and took a lift off Sholin to the Record Plant Studios. John Lennon was born and raised in Liverpool, where he lived with his mother. His father was a merchant seaman who was away for his birth and much of his childhood. In 1956, at the age of 15, John started his first band, The Quarrymen. At the band's second performance, he met Paul McCartney. Lennon invited him to join the band, and that was the beginning of what would eventually turn into The Beatles. The pair formed a much-celebrated songwriting partnership and by 1963 had achieved widespread success in the UK before their debut on The Ed Sullivan Show in the US led to international Beatlemania. There have been huge crowds of teenage girls outside complaining that they don't want to mob you, they just want to speak to you. What do you think about this? Do you want to talk to them? Well, have you ever tried talking to about 200 people at once? <laughs> We'd love to, you know. We never... We, if we all wave and somebody always says, oh, stop that waving, you're inciting them. <laughs> Despite the hits and the global acclaim, all was not well. John worried that fans at concerts couldn't hear their music above the screaming and that the band's musicianship was beginning to suffer. In 1965, he wrote Help, expressing his own feelings at the time. Is our latest record, or our latest electronic noise, depending on whose side you're on. And it's called Help! One, two, three, four! same year John was introduced to LSD and by 1967 he spent most of his time under its influence. In 1969 he married Yoko Ono who he had met years earlier. In September of that year John also decided to leave the band and so Yoko was blamed by the public for the band's breakup. John then became involved in social activism and embarked on a solo career during which he produced the album Imagine. But in 1975, John stepped away from music completely to stay at home and raise his son Sean. But he still had many dedicated fans who came to wait outside his New York apartment building for a chance to get a glimpse of him. Photographer Paul Goresh was one of those fans. He often travelled from his home in North Arlington with his Minolta camera to wait outside and take photos of the former Beatle. The 21-year-old was an intense fan and once even posed as a television repairman to get into the singer's apartment. But over the years, he built up a rapport with John. The two men often chatted, and John and Yoko even used one of Paul's photos on a record sleeve. So when a 25-year-old security guard from Honolulu, Hawaii, was loitering around John Lennon's home, nobody thought it was even a little bit strange. Let's go back to the 8th of December, 1980. 
Moments after that fateful photo was taken with John Lennon, Mark David Chapman remained hidden in the shadows of West 72nd Street. While in the studio, John and Yoko worked on a song called Walking on Thin Ice. During the recording session, the head of the record label came in to tell the couple that Double Fantasy had just gone gold. They left the studio happy with arms full of cassette tapes planning to return the next morning. Paul Goresh had returned to North Arlington unaware of the sinister intentions at play. Later that night, sitting at home, he heard the news break. Outside the Dakota building, just before 11pm, a deranged fan from Hawaii had pulled a gun from inside his coat and shot his idol in the back four times. John Lennon had been pronounced dead on arrival at Roosevelt Hospital. Paul Goresh instantly knew who had done the deed, the strange loitering man who he had spoken to earlier that day, the man he had tried to cut out of his photo of John. Considering the photo an important piece of evidence, Paul called the New York City Police Department to tell them he may have captured an image of the killer, but they hung up on him several times. The police had no interest as they had already arrested the killer. Mark David Chapman didn't run. Instead he read a copy of Catcher in the Rye while he awaited the police's arrival. Then Goresh contacted the New York Daily News and soon his pictures spread across the world. The tight shot of John with his out-of-focus killer in the background was beamed into living rooms and covered the front pages as news of the music legend's death spread across the world. His murder triggered shock and grief in his fans across the globe. Crowds gathered at Roosevelt Hospital and in front of the Dakota building. Good evening all around the world. John Lennon's fans bowed their heads in silence today. Yes, they mourned his death in silence and in song. Thousands in New York Central Park, many thousands more across the nation and the world, marking a 10-minute silent vigil at 2 o'clock local time, wherever the Lennon fans happen to be. Mark David Chapman's reason for killing John Lennon have been varied over the years. In 1981, he was sentenced to 20 years to life imprisonment. The signed album and photo were used in the case against him, but he admitted the murder. He remains in prison today, having been denied parole nine times. Paul Goresh is a controversial figure among Beatles fans. He made a lot of money from his photo, but today he doesn't use his camera much. To this day, he still wishes he could have done something to prevent the murder of John Lennon and stores the piece of film in a safety deposit box. You should never forget the true power of an image. It can create a moment that will last forever, frozen in that random second it took you to capture it. And often, it isn't until afterwards that you realise the real significance of what you've caught on film. The moment a music legend came face to face with his soon-to-be assassin. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.
Jonathan Walters appears to be winning his battle to be fit for the Republic of Ireland's World Cup qualifier against Georgia in Tbilisi on Saturday. The Burnley striker has been suffering with an ankle injury but he joined his squad mates at training at Abbottstown today. He took to the field for the warm-up with the intention of training fully but the injury is being carefully managed. Aidan McGeady is linked up to the squad following the birth of his son but John O'Shea is sitting out training today due to a tight calf. West Bromwich Albion have completed the signing of Arsenal defender Kieran Gibbs. The left-back has been signed on a four-year contract to join the baggies for a fee believed to be around £7 million and Maria Sharapova is back in action at the US Open in New York tonight the Russian is playing in her first Grand Slam since a 15 month doping ban she plays the world number 59 Tamea Babosh having upset the odds to beat the second seed Simona Halep in the opening round George all right, Ross, uh, thank you so much for that. Ross will be back in an hour with sport. Now, uh, North Korea um, has fired some missiles. Um, and nobody seems exactly clear what kind of missiles they are. Uh, I last read one of them fell into the sea, just broke up. But they are suggesting yet again, target is Guam. Now, just how dangerous is that? Well... In the studio with me is political commentator and analyst Owen O'Muraku. Owen, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. Uh, what do you think? Well, I think we are genuinely in an extremely dangerous situation. And I think the uh, the Korean side obviously views this as a response to the fact the last 10 days there have been U.S. military and naval manoeuvres, including, by the way, a simulated nuclear attack on North Korea. So, But their response, instead of acting in a diplomatic way to try and finesse the problem out, has been to respond with chest-thumping bravado. And, there and is they a, have fired missiles. Oh, yes. Yeah, so well, in Japan airspace. Yes, and the object of that is very clear, is to show they have the capability, whatever about hitting Guam or the United States, which I think is a bit fanciful, really, but they certainly have the capability of hitting Japan and of hitting South Korea, and they have, it's pretty well accepted now, miniaturized nuclear weapons that can be attached to these rockets. So the dangers are real. And I think the the necessity at this stage is to try and defuse the tensions rather than all this chest thumping. We're going to take a hard line. We're not going to tolerate this. Try and talk it out of the situation that we're in. But, you know, uh, I'm young enough, I'm old enough to remember the Korean War. Like the Korean War was 1951 or something, right? So that's getting, uh, getting on for 70 years ago. They still have no peace deal. They're exactly. still negotiating North and South Korea uh, at at the thirty fourth parallel or whatever it was. Uh, they're still there. So so the war hasn't ended. Now, if if you can't finesse the problem after seventy years between North and South Korea, what chance have you got of finessing well, this one? The point is, you've got to have real negotiations. For example, I've been to Panmunjom. On the border. On the northern side, there was only Koreans. There was The only flag was the Korean flag. There was nothing else, no Russians, no Chinese, nothing. But on the southern side, um, there were no Koreans to be seen. It was just the American army. And even worse, the only flag flying was the flag of the United States. It wasn't even the flag of the United Nations. Now, 
I, I think Peter Marta has an interesting point in today's Irish Times where he interviews some people who live close to a, a US air base in South Korea and their demand is they say we want peace, not war and we want the United States to take these things out. And I think this is really the point, the beginning. And ironically, during his election campaign, Trump actually argued that the United States should opt out of the situation and leave it to the two Koreas and Japan to talk and settle it. But that, unfortunately, has been lost. Oh, all right. But my guest, by the way, commentator and analyst Owen Omoraku. But Owen, I, I hadn't known you were at Panmunjom, where, where the peace negotiations had taken place. But so therefore, you, you know, you, you've seen that. But... Let's talk about Trump just for a second. Mm. If we were to, you and I were to stop a few people in the street, they would all think that the situation is more dangerous with President Trump rather than it might have been with President Clinton, for argument's sake, Hillary, that is. Uh, do you think Trump is part of the problem? Uh, well, I think he manifestly is. The issue with Trump is he's unpredictable. It's very, very hard to judge what he's likely to do. One moment he's talking about raining down fire and fury. Uh, the next moment he's saying, oh, th thanks to North Korea for taking our representation seriously. Then he's back to fire and fury. So it's very hard to see what he's really about. And that produces not just uncertainty uh, in terms of looking at it from the outside, it also produces uncertainty on the Korean side in their analysis. But from the end of World War II, essentially until Gorbachev, um, we had what was euphemistically called the Cold War. Yeah. And we had Russia and America, two, the only two pretty well nuclear powers, facing off with each other with rockets pointing at each other. But you always got the sense nobody is ever going to press the button because it means if the Russians do it, the Americans are going to wipe them out and everybody's going to wipe everybody out. Yeah. Surely, before we get to Korea, surely within the White House there is the understanding that if you start this we'll be down to a nuclear winter. Well, I would hope there is, but th that is not guaranteed. For example, I've read in some uh, US journals the idea that you can have a limited war on the Korean Peninsula. Now, what the Chinese would think about that is a separate matter. But the economic impact of uh, leaving aside the deaths of millions of people, which would be the consequence of it, the economic impact of the destruction of the Japanese and South uh, Korean economies, plus the climatic impact of nuclear weapons being used in such an area. Uh, you know, it's mind boggling. So I hope you're right that there are people who understand a nuclear war has to be avoided at all costs. All right, but that's on the West. We know nothing um, no. really about this this man who well, leads North Korea. You do, and, and, and commentators, this is why you're here with me. But the vast bulk of us like know nothing about him. Well, I think this is the, one of the important points to understand that we should look at these issues from the point of view of what are the Koreans talking about? What is it that's, that's their angst? Now, it is interesting amidst all the rhetoric, there's no talk that I've read anywhere of them liberating the South. There's no talk of that kind. All their talk is responding to any attacks or any threats against them. So if we take that as a starting point, and indeed the, the comments made by the newly elected president of South Korea, that he wants to have 
talks between North and South. That is the way to go, to encourage that. Yeah, uh, but you see, the war 70 years ago is actually quite important here, I mm. think, still. Uh, the war between North and South Korea. The Americans then came in, and MacArthur famously um, wanted to nuke. It's really interesting. He wanted to nuke them, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's 70 years ago. And that's why he was fired by President yeah. Truman. But when the threat for North Korea became real because of North MacArthur, the Chinese came across the border to support North Korea. Where are China now? Would China support North Korea now or would they not? Well, there is a mutual defense pact, although mutual defense is a bit sort of uh, highfalutin. There is a mutual defense pact between the North Korea and China. But the Chinese have made it clear in the last uh, couple of months that they will not uh, respond to the the terms of that uh, mutual defense pact if the North Koreans instigate or initiate an attack. Now, that's quite a major concession on their part and is a statement to the North Koreans do not, you know, this came after all the Guam threats and so on. They were making it very clear, we will not back you if you go down yeah. that road. But isn't this the point, Omarokou, that in fact, China is a better broker than the USA? Well, for us, it is, yes. It is, the, the, West, only, I mean, it is yeah. the only one with which, I mean, North Korea's economy is not based on trade. That's an important point to remember when we talk about sanctions. It's not a trading economy. Uh, but whatever trade it does, it is with China, uh, both at a national level and then this newly developing individualized trade, which is being allowed under Kim Jong-un. Now, if that is the only area where there can be any influence, but I, I've, as I say, I've been to Korea. The one thing that comes across very clearly, they're an, an extremely nationalistic and um, chest-beating proud people, um, and they don't uh, like being told what to do by anybody, be it Russians, Chinese, and certainly not Americans. So the difficulty there is to deal with them. And the Chinese, in fact, have said it, that if the United States would pull back on the military maneuvers, which are a biannual event, have been going on for 50 years, that would help reduce the tensions and at the same time to tell the Koreans or try and persuade the Koreans not to be indulging in things like the rocket Okay, but... Entering another country's airspace has always been seen as a pretty inflammatory act. Oh, it is I mean, inflammatory, and, yeah. and we have seen where planes that have inadvertently crossed into airspace and so on mm. either been shot down or shepherded away by, by fighter planes in different countries. Now, I, I, I don't understand why, in fact, everybody's been so calm about uh, a missile entering Japanese airspace. Well, I, I think there is still a belief that it is all only for show. And that's fine. But the problem is, as I think one of the Australian uh, researchers into this issue said today in an Australian newspaper, um, you know, you only need an individual human error or indeed a technological error for the situation to change. If, for example, there'd been a malfunction in that rocket, and instead of flying over Japan and dispersing in the sea, if it had actually failed and landed in Japan, then the the circumstances would be, I think, quite clearly, absolutely tragic. So somebody with your knowledge... Are you worried? Or are oh, very much so. Are you? Very much so. Uh, because I think that w- unless the tensions are defused, 
there is a circular process which can ratchet it up and up and up and up. And as I say, uh, leaving aside the question of human error, technological error, uh, there becomes a point where the weight of of action demand becomes so big. And as I say, we, we saw yesterday after this incident, um, the British Prime Minister Theresa May saying, we're going to take firm line on this. Uh, uh, Macron in France, the same thing. Simon Coveney, no less. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Skibbereen Eagle is alive and well. But the point is, all of this stuff about we will take firm alliance, the, the real issue, which... I think both the Chinese and the Russians have said, and that's good, is let's instead try and defuse the tension and actually open the road for real talks between North and South, not necessarily about resolving the issues of the Korean War, because that's a long term project, but certainly about establishing an ability for the two states to live comfortably and confident in their own security with each other. I think that's a big hope, but we can't but live in hope. My guest, political commentator and analyst, Owen Omoroku. I'm talking about pictures in a minute. All these millions of pictures we have actually make us happy. Owen, thank you so much for joining me. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. On the issue of North Korea, a listener says, don't be scaring people. There won't be a nuclear um, war. And what's the difference between North Korea and Iran, who were the bad guys a few years ago? The program's great, but don't be scaring us. And then Robert Knopfley says the guest is being foolish. What do you think will happen if the US pulls out? Kim Young, whatever his name is, will come south across 38 parallel with every tank he has. I think you're right. Now, my guest on that piece of uh, information was Owen O'Moraku. He's asked me to tell everybody that the winner of the competition isn't his cousin, because the winner of the competition, who knew that the stadium, now the Aviva, was previously Lansdowne Road, was Padraig O'Moraku. And he's going to have a break at the Clayton Hotel Burlington Road. It's all his. What a great time he's going to have. And tomorrow, another chance to be at another Clayton Hotel. Well, I don't know. I, I, I was trying to find photographs of myself once when I was a child and I couldn't find any because, of course, only rich people had cameras and ordinary folk didn't. Now every Tom, Dick and Harry has cameras. They're taking millions of pictures, but are they happier? And more importantly, does it enhance the memory of the event? Well, Tom Lawler is a photographer of some standing. He's been um, a presenter here on News Talk. He's been on this program many times talking about this kind of stuff. So welcome, um, Tom. Thank you, George. Does it enhance the memory? No, it doesn't. And we have proof of it. Um, a psychologist in Fairfield University Linda Henkel, she did some research on this and it was quite extensive. And what she has discovered is that particularly young people nowadays are using the camera as an aid memoir to remember what was happening. She set a study for them. She brought them to a museum and she said, I want you to photograph six objects and I want you to look at the rest. And the six objects they photographed, they couldn't remember because they felt they were abrogating that skill of memory when the phone took the picture so they didn't have to think about it ever again. 
Yeah, I, I, but also what about the immediacy? Like if people now go to a concert or an event, yeah. they actually are photographing the event while they they're are. watching it. Yeah. Whereas like the whole fun of watching it, like the winner of the prize was Lansdowne Road Rugby. I, I almost get the impression now that people will go there and sort of video the match rather than actually watch it. They, they do. And the reason they're doing it, particularly young people uh, are doing it, to communicate with other young people. It's not to to have a great picture. It's to have a memory. But it's also a way of showing off. It's a way of saying, this is what I'm doing today. This is what I'm feeling today. This is what I'm eating today. All right. You know, it's OK. All right. I buy it. But <laughs> let's, you're an expert now on photography. Let's talk about, like, photography and its history. Right, know, yeah. Right? Uh, the fellow used to put his head under a sort of black cloak or something and he'd take the picture and it yeah. was upside down I think when he took it yes. and then he got it and so on now and when we now look back at those pictures they were invariably very stilted pictures probably wedding photographs yeah. or something yeah. like that then it moved on to a stage where you know we had a camera yes right but, like, I did mean it. Poor people didn't have cameras. No, they didn't. The, the, a camera was quite a, a, an accessory. Yeah. So, haven't I missed something out here by not having photographs of my childhood or my parents or... Haven't I missed out? You have, and is the truth of it. Um, but grandchildren don't see their grandparents anymore unless you have imagery of them. And nowadays, every event, communions, funerals, dinners, birthdays, first days at school, everything is now photographed. But the problem is we're now swamped with thousands of images. There are something like 250 million pictures put up on Facebook every day. It's astonishing. Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, when I got married, it was no different from anybody else. Yeah. We had a wedding photographer, yeah, right? Yeah. And then it appeared in some kind of book or something, right? Yes, yeah, the album. I don't know where the album is, and I certainly <laughs> never opened it. Try the attic, George. I never That's opened it. That's where all the wedding albums well, are. But I never opened it from, yeah. the, day I bo- from yeah. the day I paid for it. Yeah, you didn't need it. You didn't need it. It was probably... Well, I'm al- looking at her every day yeah. it, to remind me. Yeah, and she's probably slowly evolving. And in your mind's eye, she is still the woman you married so many years ago. But it is nice to have the memory refreshed when you look back and you see the the bride in in, in the lovely gown and the happy people out for a celebration. But but what you're presumably seeing now, because of the multiplicity of pictures, there is no... What's the word I'm looking for? Um... There's there's no kind of sense of saying this is good, this is bad. No. Now, when you're taking a picture, you're saying this is a good one now. Or yeah. Whereas now, everybody just clicks anyway. Correct, correct. But part of the reason for that, Tom, and I want to ask you, because you're a professional photographer, you would have come through film. Oh, so yeah, you very would have, much so. You would have taken pictures in which you only had 36 mm-hmm. that you could take, right? Yeah, yeah. Before you, you took the roll out, sent it to the chemist, right? Now <laughs> now you have electronics where you can take 3,000. That's right. So isn't your, I'm still searching for this word, right. isn't your kind of sense 
uh, now of what is a good picture of adult because you should say so if I take a hundred one of them is bound to be good no. whereas when you only had 36 you said i got to make this work yeah you, you can't do that professional photographers have what's known as an educated eye that's the word I wanted thank you very much an educated, educated eye, eye you see eye. and every picture I take has a reason behind it it has a job to do it has a purpose it has to earn a living for me it has to please a client or it has to excite someone when they see it on a gallery wall and they want to buy it that is a different kind of photography than what people are enjoying today with their camera phones you really you're not comparing like with like all right but uh, okay let's compare you now right so i go down to lawler and i say tom i need a you know really good shot of me for whatever reason yes of course uh, promotional purposes whatever so i need to take a picture of george yeah right and then suddenly i come down and and you say well look I, I like your head on picture two, but I like your body on picture one, so I'll move your head from two to one. Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. you? No, I don't. <laughs> that, that would cost too much money, George. No, but isn't that true? No. no Doesn't that it, also... It can happen. I know of wedding photographers who spend the rest of their lives doctoring up wedding photographs to please brides who will never be pleased. I want okay. my teeth... I want my teeth more whiter, I want my eyes bluer, I want my legs longer. They should stop doing this. This is absolute nonsense. For example, you see the photographs of young ladies on the internet now, and all of them have to put on a pouty mouth. In a hundred years from now, doctors will be examining these pictures and saying, what was going on? What disease was going on that all the young women had pouty mouths? It seems to be a fashion that they do But to get back to where we came from... yeah. You don't think it enhances the memory. You don't think no. a picture of uh, one of my grandchildren, like the the, the eldest fellow, for argument's sake, the two eldest boys are rugby players. You don't think uh, X number of years from now, somebody's going to be looking at a picture of him playing for the under-14s, no? Yeah, it will have a job to do in the sense of that lad's personal history. And they can say, this is when he first held a rugby ball. This is when he first won a medal. Of course, these are great mementos to have. Like if you had, it was a wonderful evening in Clontarf Rugby Club when Brian O'Driscoll and a few guys arrived in, in their dress suits, they were going off to a formal occasion. And there was a couple of lads throwing a ball around on the pitch. And O'Driscoll rolled up his trousers, stuck them into his socks, in his dress suit, went out onto the pitch and was showing them how to throw the ball around. What a wonderful moment of the teacher passing on the magic. There was no camera present. Okay. What a tragedy. Right. All right. The... When now the I would have had and and I, I in my opening I said I find it hard to find a picture of me of of, of young yeah, you know because yeah. there aren't very few around, whereas now everybody will have five thousand pictures yeah yeah of won't they they will and this this will become a problem for them and really what they have to do is you need to set aside time and you need to edit the five thousand pictures down to fifty, and you can get them produced in a photo book. It's the cheapest thing in the world to do. There are lots of Irish firms who will produce a photo book for you and that is the way to store them and that is the way to enjoy them. Because if they're locked away in the ether, no one will ever see them and they will die and they will never have a life. Do you think there's something wrong with me because I, I don't take pictures of my phone? I don't, have I, I don't take pictures of my phone either. I have so. a job <laughs> photographer like. 
But well, I don't. Should, well, why don't I take pictures with my phone? What do you think that is? I don't know. Maybe there. Are, maybe do you think there's some deep psychological kind of damage done that I was too poor to own a camera? No. Um, well, I I don't think you should be taking photographs of yourself, George. No, I wasn't. But if you think, for example, if you think, for example, the access you have. Can you imagine behind the scenes when you're on television, there must be terrific moments worth capturing when you're alone in in the rugby stadium after the game and there's a solitary player walking down the gangway to the bus, a lovely moment captured. You have great access to to stuff that nobody else has. uh, And one or two pictures will be Tom McGurk has all those kind of pictures and he always (laughs) has Tom McGurk in (laughs) the pictures. He does. All right. uh, Well, I'm I'm, I'm hopefully um, I'll have pictures of my children anyway to look back on. If I don't have pictures of myself, I do have a text from Deborah who said she took 800 photographs when she took the boys on holiday. I got every one of them developed. They're in albums and the memories will be there for years to come. Alison Wexford said one of her fondest memories for her childhood was sitting quietly, waiting for my parents to wake up and flipping through their wedding album, which I, of course, wasn't around for. Although she did end that sentence with a preposition, which, uh, strictly speaking, wasn't correct, Tom. But this is the power of photography. I mean, photography speaks any language to any person. I saw a wonderful image recently of a a group of Japanese tourists in the Louvre Museum and they were all standing with their back to the Mona Lisa taking selfies. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the Japanese were the original photographers. I mean, the Japanese, the image of Japanese of the kind of uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, yeah. that every Japanese had a camera. Yeah, that's right. But I think, I think it was the, the great American photographers that started documenting the society that they lived in very well. The Dorothea Langs, the Elliot Erwitz, Sally Manns, terrific photographers, great American photographers documenting their own communities and they were very powerful images and they will last forever. That is true. Funny enough, somebody sent me about 20 pictures of of, of American history. Yeah, you wonderful know. stuff. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Yeah, absolutely yeah. magical. Yeah. yeah. I, one of them was interesting. It was Winston Churchill going for a swim. And uh, this is now the fats or cigar smelling Winston. This probably was taken in the early 30s, maybe. And he had those old kind of full body bathing suits on. Wonderful stuff. And then there were shots of, it was a great shot of the day General Patton died. Yeah. And his dog is lying there uh, waiting his return, but his master isn't going to come. Those kind of things that you say, the great photographers, Dr. Documenting yeah. the social movement of a country is yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. They, these were terrific images. Although I'm a little bit concerned <laughs> about the, some of the modern uh, photographers. I noticed recently a, a photograph of Leo Varadkar, our new Taoiseach, swimming in the River Liffey. And I thought to myself, hang on a minute. I remember pictures of Chairman Mouse swimming in the Yangtze River. So <laughs> we're not going to have photographers repeating famous themes and bringing them up to date with a, a new cast in them. Oh, yeah. For Edgar in the Yangtze River. That's yeah. Tom, you bring great <laughs> stuff to bear. There's no question. Uh, well, yeah, what do you think of Melania's heels? Uh, I, there's a lot of shots now of just her heels. Have you seen those? I, no, I, I, I don't. You missed in- that. I don't indulge my fetishes anymore, George. <laughs> 
Well, she was going to her again. There was fierce cribbing going on yeah, that yeah. she was wearing 12 inches of heels yeah, yeah. instead of galoshes. Yeah, but it's terrible the way people like that are just attacked for no reason. You know what I mean? It's point. It's a pointless exercise. This whole ruthless fashion world needs to be ignored a little bit more. All right, and you're going to ignore it, are you? Oh, I have done for quite a while, yeah. Is there a photograph of you, Tom Lawler, that, like, just is the number one picture for A you? photograph of myself? No, a picture that, that any picture taken by oh, you or others or whatever led you, you think was one of the great shots? Um, I think uh, Bill Doyle did some wonderful stuff uh, on the Ireland Islands uh, that are great shots. Uh, the they were going the, out in their corrects the and Bill all that But stuff. even more than that, Bill was great at uh, getting into communities and getting them to be at ease with them. And Bill got some great stuff. The great documentary photographer Tony O'Shea has done some wonderful, spectacular work. He had an exhibition uh, depicting his father dying and it was just a very personal, powerful emotional journey and when you're talking about the educated eye you're talking about these guys these are the heavyweights I um, I have a blank space in the wall what will I put up I won't put up a photograph of me obviously what do you think I should put up well I think it's, it's a very that's a very interesting thing to do first of all you need to look at a photograph that excites you that causes you the curiosity the that excite me I can't put on my wall Tom <laughs> Steady, George. I'm not talking about arousal. I'm talking about excitement. Oh. And what you need to do, and what you need to do then, is to think of themes that you like looking at that maybe prompt a memory in you. These I have. I would have about forty images on my walls at home, and uh, they're all of special assignments I was on and stuff like that. And one or two maybe family members. All right, Tom Lawler on the memory of the camera. Um, coming up next, in Numbers That Talk, the CSO are going to talk to us about air conditioning. Just how many of us have it, or more importantly, have not. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. It's time for our Wednesday special with the senior statistician at the Central Statistics Office, Deirdre Cullen. Last week and the week before, Deirdre had me jetting all across the world and back um, in the kind of numbers that go through our various airports. Astonishingly, if you were listening last week, less people go through Shannon than Cork. I was amazed. And every week when Deirdre comes here, she brings that kind of information, which is really uh, interesting and more importantly fun. Deirdre, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. Now, this is really interesting this week, right? Now, given... No, but there's a generational thing here. It's possible if there's a 25-year-old listening, 25-year-old might say, why are we talking about this? If you're uh, an old-age pensioner, if you're a person of another generation, you're really interested in issues of of heating and and uh, and cooking and all that sort of thing. For instance, you're actually going to give me some figure on central heating. Central heating was non-existent fifty years ago. That's so true. we're looking at something that that has happened very recently. That's right. And I grew up without central heating, yeah. and I'm sure you did too. Um, and I um, suppose most people over fifty did. 
Um, so the CSO brought out a release there a couple of weeks ago on net- networked gas consumption. So some of us in Dublin use gas for our central heating and it's just on tap. You just turn it on and then you pay your bill after you've been lovely and warm for a couple of months. Um, And so we brought out that release. So I thought I might cover some of those figures and also then have a look at, again, going back to the census, what that's telling us about what type of fuels people are using for their central heating and the urban-rural divide and how it divides across the country. And there's some, there are some interesting no, numbers here, for sure. No, there would have to be. Like, a modern house built in urban Ireland today, like built in the last 10 years, would probably have central heating in it. Isn't that right? Particularly if it were a private de- dwelling as opposed to a corporation dwelling. Well, I'm going to tell you, according, yeah. according to our statistics, um, there's very few houses in Ireland have no central heating. In, very few? Very few, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at numbers here of 25,000 houses. But like people living in these big rambling old houses in the country or eminently wealthy high court judges living in Aylesbury Road or somewhere, these big houses never had central heating. No, but it's been all been retrofitted, you have to assume. Now, there could be a little bit of... Oh, there's a naga in the kitchen. That was the big... If you yep. were, you really had made it if you had a naga. You know, you were kind of wealthy if you had a naga. Let's have a look at the numbers. I guess. <laughs> no, I don't have any numbers on Agus. Uh, urban households, um, 51% of them are using gas and 26% are using oil. They're the top two fuels for central heating. In rural households, 65% are using uh, oil and only um, gas, only 2% are using gas in rural households. So the gas is very much uh, an urban phenomenon in Ireland. But isn't Eamon Ryan now, the Green Party, going to come hurtling through the door at any moment into the studio telling us that we should be burning grass or something to keep the country green? No. Is there not an issue? I mean, using oil. I thought oil was bad news now. My diesel motor car is like smoking. You're not allowed to use it anymore. Well, look, we are where we are and we do drive our diesel cars, George, and we do have to heat our houses with oil. I mean, uh, 400, uh, what am I looking at here? Almost 700,000 households in Ireland are heating themselves with oil. And yeah. and they will be this winter. And, you know, I look at gas, it's... Um, it's uh, 570,000 are heating with gas. Now, you know Ingrid's a great environmentalist and she puts stuff in the green bin, the black bin, the brown bin. I don't know what they are, but she puts them into them. Now, at one point in the house, we heated it with coal. Okay, 87,000 people have told the, the census that they that is their main fuel for their central heating. Now, that do, would include anthracite. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know the big problem with that? You have to clean out the bloody ash. Yeah, and that was my job. Like, And I made sure we changed it quickly. Imagine me every day down on my knees with a shovel cleaning out the ash. I think we all remember that. And the, the dirt, you know, but I guess some people, they have a system and they can do it and it, it works for them. I mean, the house where I live in Glasnevin Avenue, we had the coal shed out the back. I think most yeah. of our houses did. And, you know, I still have a strong memory of the truck pulling up and the guy with the big sacks of coal on his shoulder carrying yeah. them through. And uh, you'd have your coal shed would be full up to the roof but with coal heading into the winter. still. That's right. You astonish me. Do I? Well, I doubt it. obviously there's 87,000 fellas are prepared to go down their knees with a shovel to get the ash. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, Pete, 90,000 people Pete. tell us, yeah, that they're burning peace to stay warm in the winter. Now, our question is about what type of fuel does your central heating use? But now it could be that people are burning it 
and it's not oh, feeding into a back in the, boiler. It's in the grate, you mean? Well, you know, people mightn't fully interpret that question properly. Oh, it right. could be like yeah, a back yeah. boiler type of system. But 90,000 houses are telling us that. Now, stall the ball now. What, what right. county has the highest percentage of households? You, burning peat. Burning peat? Yeah. Lovely Leitrim. Awfully. Where well, else? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Well, isn't the... Isn't Longford. The Right. 38% of, of households in Offaly told us they were burning uh, peat. But they and 20%, prob- one in five in Longford. Yeah, but they can probably go to the back garden and there's probably a bog and they can just dig it up and burn it. There you go. And out in uh, Galway, Galway County and not in the yeah. city. No, but uh, you can understand that, can't you? Oh, I can, of course. I can, yeah, of course. But it, it, <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it's there. I, I guess it's affordable. I don't know how much a bag of turf is compared to a bag of... Coal or but there on used to be gas. a thing called briquettes. Do they still exist? I think they do. I think they do. Portnoy will come down hard on us. <laughs> fabulous, <laughs> fabulous sort of central heating. No, but heating. I thought the EU was opposed to bogs or something. No. Oh, that's right, milling up the the turf. Let's have a look at the Dublin numbers. So gas is by far the most popular form of central heating in Dublin. Uh, Almost 7 out of 10 of us are using gas to heat our homes. Yeah. Uh, But 11% of us are using oil and very small numbers. This is is cute. In Dunleary, where can I go with this now? 241 (laughs) dwellings told us they're burning wood (laughs) for their central heating and 61 told us they were burning turf. Um... Within those figures for Dublin overall, um, gas is the most popular in the Dunleary Ratdown area and in South Dublin. In Fingal, it's less popular. So I don't know if this is where the pipes are laid or. But it, only... it's, it's, it could be a middle class thing, though. I mean, you're talking about two of the most middle class areas in Dublin, in, in South Dublin and, and Dublin Ratdown. So in, in Dunleary Ratdown. So it could be like, although gas. Is, is might not be expensive of itself. The installation still, when you talk about retrofitting, I mean, it's not cheap to suddenly get a guy in and say, put central heating in for me. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think a gas boiler now is 3,000 euro or three yeah. or 4,000 euro. Yeah. That's right. Now, the, the, the thing, though, about uh, the gas is that it, it, this is all coming down a pipeline from Moscow or somewhere. Do you know that? Yeah, if like you say so. <laughs> it is. It's coming down the pipeline. Next week we look at Moscow and gas, but... Uh, the, okay. the, yeah, the, because the, the carob field isn't on stream yet or something. I don't think so. Yeah. Did you tell me how many houses have no central heating? Yeah, well, in I mean, 22,000, that's what they're telling us, have no central heating. In the but, country yeah. or in Dublin? No, that's in the country. But I'm thinking, you know, there could be a little bit of misinterpretation there by people with regards to the question. Okay. You know. Oh, yes, you did say that. Now, 30, it, 34,000 are burning wood. Oh, I knew there was something I wanted to tell you. In On the continent, these wood-burning stoves are very popular. Yeah, my two of my sisters have them. Is that the glass box? Where yes. You yeah, I'm getting one of them, George. They're, they're very popular. They're supposed to be fantastic things. Yes. I think if you burn fuel in the fire, is it 80% of it goes up the chimney? And yeah. that's a well-established um, kind of metric or yeah. measure of efficiency. Whereas with that sealed glass box that you just sit in the grate, yeah. I think it's like only well, no, 40% it's, it's, or something. Yeah, but it's really brilliant. And the other thing is... Have you got one? 
the lovely Ingrid has it uh, in our stately home somewhere else. But the interesting thing about that, of course, is because you can't burn a fire on Christmas Eve because Santa Claus can't come down. So anybody with grates can't burn on, on uh, Christmas Eve. But the, the wooden thing is very popular in the continent. And Ingrid, being a good Austrian, is keen on it. But well, that, that makes the, the people of Cork County very international now because that's the county with the largest number of people burning wood. Uh, almost 5,000 homes told us they were burning wood for their central heating. Tipperary, 3,000. Very few in the cities, just small numbers in the hundreds. Um, and in Leitrim, 517 dwellings. But yeah. a friend of mine just cut down a few trees now, so he'll be burning wood all <laughs> but, winter, increasing to yeah, add to I'm those statistics. Yeah, but I'm going to talk about all winter in a minute. But you know you have pals across Europe who are all statisticians. It might be interesting if you rang up your pal in Nuremberg or in Vienna and said, listen, how many wood-burning stoves have you? You might get a very interesting number. Give him a ring, you know. Now, the second thing is, though, one has to presume that in June, July and August, there's very little consumption of any kind of central heating, gas, oil or otherwise, no? That's right. Now, the only figures I have on a seasonal basis, with you know, which yeah. is what we're talking about there, is the gas. So 43% of the gas that's consumed by domestic households in Ireland is consumed in January, February, March. 23% in October, November, December. So January, February, March are the cold months. Maybe we're all feeling a little bit frailer as well and the winter's been going on that bit longer and we're turning the heat up because I would have thought November, December can be just as bitter. But uh, June, July, August, only 6% of our consumption. But there's a very interesting thing. You know I have an irregular heartbeat. Did I tell you that? Didn't know that, George. Right. Well, I take a pill which... Uh, thins your blood, oh, yeah. right? Because you could get a stroke with an irregular heartbeat. But it's an interesting thing in relation to your figures, strangely enough. <laughs> it's not a, 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 a cliche. When your blood is thin, you feel the cold more. Okay. So therefore, in our house, you have Ingrid who says, God, it's very hot. And you have George who says it's very cold. Oh. So in fact, like this week, she's not here. So I have everything burning. Have you heating on in the house at the moment? Yeah, because I'm on my own. Okay. You see. I you, wouldn't be able to do that if she was there. Yeah, you must like it really warm. I mean, I know, you know, the past few weeks, you know, since the beginning of August, yeah. like there was a drop in the temperature. And, you know, I did think to turn it on, but I haven't turned it yeah, on well, yet. I, I, have I to wouldn't say. be allowed to turn it on. She, her response is, when I say it's cold... Put on a sweater. Put on a jumper. Well, there's something There's something in that, in fairness. <laughs> you know. I want to go to a different point. Only because I know you haven't got the figures in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> and we create a bit of confusion. Try me. No, no, it's interesting that we would talk about central heating, right? Okay? Mm. It's interesting you use the phrase, and I use the phrase, central heating. Whereas our American cousins would say air conditioning because the system will be pumping out hot air in the winter and cold air in the summer. Yeah. We, by and large, you don't have the figures, but it'd be really interesting if we asked people the question, do you have air conditioning in summer? The figure would be minuscule, I would think. I would be astonished if any Irish homes have air conditioning. I mean, we have it in our offices, all right. And yeah. it's a curse. I think most people hate it. I, I can't abide air conditioning myself, personally. Um, 
but look at it it could be in the future we will need it I lived in Australia and you know we used to joke us Europeans in Australia because the Australians out in Alice Springs that go this isn't hot yeah. and then you say that's because you leave your air conditioned house and you get into your air conditioned car and you go yeah. to your air conditioned workplace and then you have a pint in your air conditioned pub of course it's not hot yeah. <laughs> it's 40 degrees well, outside well I was I worked in Houston Texas and in the summer it's about 100 degrees and about 120 degrees humidity and in order like to walk down, say, Grafton Street. You'd do it by going to Burger King, McDonald's. You wouldn't buy anything, but you'd just take a breather in the air conditioning thing on the way down the road. But the interesting thing, I would say, you're probably right. There's hardly an air-conditioned house dwelling mm. in the country. Now, what they do with me... Just open the windows. Yeah, but what they do with me, I mean, it's a conspiracy. When I go into a restaurant or whatever, they sit me under the vent. So I'm sitting there. Do you feel the same way? This blast of cold air comes down on top of you. Yeah. Yeah, and you ask them to turn it off, and then the place is too hot or something. So yeah, yeah no, it's 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 dreadful stuff, absolutely. Um, so it might just because I mentioned this networked gas consumption, this new release Network. that the CSO. What's that? Well, you could, because you can get bottled gas as well. So oh, yeah. we just got the, the, the administrative data on networked gas consumption. And we just had a look at where the meters were. Yeah. So Dublin has the lion's share. 44% of all gas meters are in the Dublin no, area. No, uh, Deputy Paul Murphy isn't opposed to us paying for gas, is he? I know he's opposed to us paying for water. It's when you said meter, it worried me. <laughs> I don't know what Senator Murphy's views are on Deputy I mean, Murphy. On Deputy, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Deputy Murphy. Deputy yeah. Murphy. Um, so uh, we can have a look at the median kilowatt hour. So this is. Uh huh. Yeah, who's, who's, who's gobbling up? Who's gobbling up the most gas? Yeah. Where do you live again? Dublin 18, is it? Dublin Leary Rat Down, yeah. Okay. The 18. Okay. Well, that, actually, the high. Oh, no. Dublin 14 has the highest. Churchtown. They're using almost 13,000 kilowatt hours per year. Dublin 1 and 2 are only using 6,200. Now, that would be a feature of average household size as well. The uh, reason it's happening in, in uh, Dublin 14 is Senator or is Minister Shane Ross is up there and he's in, probably encouraging everybody to turn on the tap. You know, when you think about metered gas consumption, though, I mean, you know, it it could raise issues around things like fuel poverty because, you know, if you're using your coal or your oil or some other fuels, you have to get them delivered and pay up front if you think about it. Whereas with the gas, you get to use it and then you pay after the fact. Yeah, and but the poverty thing is interesting though. I mean, isn't there a Christmas supply of turf or something for old age pensioners or a Christmas supply of coal or something? No? I don't know if that's still in place. It certainly sounds familiar. It sounds like something from the 70s. No, but, but Age Action... They, they might give them yeah. a voucher now rather yeah. than a bag of coal. Age Action used to talk, still talk about the number of older people who are cold. Yeah, no, of course. It's I'm, I imagine it is. They might as well have central heating in the house, but they can't turn it on. They can't afford to turn it on. Yeah. Do you know which is a, which is uh, this thing of fuel poverty is is a very important topic. Yes, but I mean, and it, you know, I mean, if you're burning your oil, you have to get it delivered and pay your five or six hundred quid up front, and then you know, run it down throughout the winter and. Keep an eye on your gauge and I don't know. I suppose I have the gas and I just find it so convenient. It's fantastic stuff. (laughs) (laughs) 
You're a kind of ambassador for on board gosh, are you? Is no, I just, I just like big warm. Yeah. I think it's after my years oh. living in Australia. I think they could get a picture of sort of you and I in our shorts and T-shirts sitting in the front room and <laughs> the caption underneath sort of says, you know, snug and warm, Kangston Network Gas. <laughs> there you go. I, th- I think that's a great An marketing An jumper line. in sight. <laughs> that's Not a, a gansy to be line. seen. <laughs> okay, well, it's numbers that, numbers that talk. Deirdre Cullen, a senior statistician at CSO, will be back next week, of course, try and keep her out. Um, the, the numbers are extraordinary. No matter where here we look every day. Numbers are part of our very lives. Uh, the team today was uh, Alex Russo and Kira Courtney with, of course, uh, Michael Quilligan on Sands. Deirdre will be back next week and I'll be back tomorrow.